You're listening to On The Record Off Script. My name is Mark Coffin, and I am your host. In this episode, we'll be talking about how cabinet actually works, including both the rote and routine decisions that every cabinet is bogged down with, as well as how political strategy gets discussed at cabinet, how power is balanced between cabinets and premier's offices, and how that's changed from the cabinets of John Savage and John Hamm to the cabinets of Daryl Dexter and Stephen McNeil. We'll hear from cabinet ministers that have served in liberal, NDP, and progressive conservative governments, and about how the term consensus means something different when you're in a cabinet room. That's this week on On the Record, Off Script. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit solution that gives you all the ingredients you need to make delicious meals with the freshest ingredients at the end of your busy day. You can go to hellofresh.ca slash on the record to get a 50% discount off your first order from them, or you can enter code record50 at checkout after you've had a chance to explore the site. HelloFresh is a super convenient, easy way to make delicious food because all you have to do is pick out some meals on their website, order a food box, the box arrives at your doorstep, all the ingredients you need are in it, you can get home from work at the end of your busy day, not have to worry about going to the grocery store, not have to worry about fighting traffic or waiting in lineups and really just focus on the fun parts of cooking. All the meals can be made in 30 minutes or less. Even somebody like me who has very little competence and confidence in other culinary endeavors can make a great tasting meal in less than a half an hour. So go to hellofresh.ca slash on the record or enter record 50 at checkout after you've had a chance to explore the site and explore what recipes they've got in order to get 50% off your first box from HelloFresh. That's hellofresh.ca slash on the record. One of the things we heard consistently from the former MLAs we spoke with when we asked them about the legislature was that... But really, in politics, the legislature was all just theater, just play-acting. No decisions were made there, really. We know that what goes on in the legislature is just for show. The real decisions are being made somewhere else. They're being made in other rooms, the premier's office, the, the cabinet room, the minister's offices. They're being made in office buildings around downtown Halifax. And what all of those rooms have in common is you're not allowed inside. In the last two episodes of Offscript, we began exploring the question of how power works within the provincial government. First by considering what an MLA on either side of the house needs to do in order to get something done, and then by looking at the way cabinet ministers approach decision making within their own office. In this episode, the final episode dedicated to this particular topic, we're going to explore the two places where power is most concentrated in the Nova Scotia government, at the provincial cabinet table and in the premier's office. In our interviews, we learned relatively quickly that, as a general rule, each government's cabinet operated differently than the next, and it was the premier who made cabinet work the way it did. But some things worked the same, no matter who was in the premier's chair. Like, who sits where? It might seem like an odd place to start, but we'll begin with the seating plan. I'll give you a picture of what it looks like in the cabinet room. So you have the premier sitting at the head of the table, a big sort of long, oblong table, if you will. That's Andrew Younger. He was a cabinet minister for several years in Steve McNeil's Liberal cabinet during the party's first term in government. He served as minister of both energy and the environment, and ultimately ended his career as an independent, sitting outside both Liberal caucus and cabinet. And ministers are seated in order of precedence, uh, which is basically who is elected first, right? So even if you, um, 
you know, if Howard Epstein had been put in cabinet in the dying days of the Dexter government, he actually would have been near the front of the table because he'd been around for so long, right? Because it's by precedence. Uh, and, that, and that already creates an interesting dynamic because the people who were most recently elected are at the end of the table. Right, so further away from the premier. I thought it was. It, it's not by the level of seniority of the department, like finance, no, health. No, so there is no official level of seniority. But now the only exception is deputy premier. So a deputy premier obviously it tends they're would, up top would sit at the top. But other than that, it's all by precedence. But it does create a problem because you could be, you could have the most important thing to raise, but you're way sort of at the back end of the table because. You know, you not only were one of the last ones elected, but then alphabetically your riding is at the end too, which is the second part of precedence if everybody's elected on the same day. So I'll give you an example here. Kelly Regan and I were elected at the same time. Uh, and she is Bedford. I was Dartmouth. So she was ahead of me in precedence. We were elected at the same time, but, you know, it's Bedford comes before Dartmouth. Yeah. So now that's important because you got to see the dynamic then sitting off to sitting off to the side of the table anyways is the uh, the staff person who's sort of the clerk of the executive council if you will um, there is the the premier's deputy minister would normally be there uh, but then there's the chief of staff and usually a gaggle of communications or senior advisor people so beyond today, the seating plan the other thing that remains consistent between cabinet meetings from one government to the next is the amount of routine approvals that each cabinet must conduct. In any cabinet, under any government, there are the kind of decisions that just need to happen, nothing too controversial, but decisions that, by law, the full cabinet must make. There's no shortage of things like these. So the thing that people don't seem to realize about the cabinet is most of the stuff that comes to it is is there because the law requires it to go to cabinet. So Graham Steele was the finance minister for Daryl Dexter's NDP government. So so the cabinet, the executive council, which is its legal name, is the body that has to decide a million things on behalf of the government. Most of the laws put responsibility for making all kinds of decisions, ultimate responsibility, on the, the governor and council, what it's called in Nova Scotia, the governor and council, which means that a lot of stuff is there because the law requires that it go to cabinet. So a lot of it, it's, people have no idea, like a lot of the cabinet agenda is pure formality, something that has to go to cabinet, be approved by cabinet, and the cabinet ministers don't read it, they don't understand it, they couldn't care less. It just It is a requirement that it go through the cabinet. And that, that would describe the vast majority of the stuff on a cabinet agenda. One of the things that people find very strange is that if you want to do a land sale with the province, like, for example, they're closing a bit of street that didn't really exist and they're going to sell it to you, well, that probably has to go to cabinet. It might only be a thousand bucks, but it has to go to cabinet. So, so cabinet is not a body where there's like extended freewheeling policy discussions. A lot of it is just churning through the agenda. You've got all these items. And it's like a sausage factor, and you just got to keep churning the wheel. Because if you if you don't decide these things, well, it's just got to be on the agenda for the following week. And there's so much stuff coming to the cabinet that you got to crank out the decisions. According to Graham, there wasn't any particular logic to the order in which these kind of decisions would come to cabinet. Because it is this formal legal body, the stuff that's on the agenda is fairly random. Like, it's just whatever is ready at a particular moment in time. There's no rhyme or reason 
to what's in front of the cabinet on any particular day. It's just whatever the sausage factory has pushed up to the top level that week, that's what's on the agenda. Cabinet meetings are typically a full morning, but most of that time would generally be taken up by these sorts of decisions. And so what what ended up happening in the Dexter cabinet, and I assume it's like this in other cabinets, but I don't know, is we'd go to the meeting. The first half hour was was for whatever anybody wanted to bring up about anything. And the rest of the time was just plowing through the agenda. And when the agenda was through, all the formalities, uh, then we went home. You have the official part of the meeting, which is the agenda. And then you have this, what they call an off-camera meeting, uh, which is, or in-camera meeting, I guess, where then they'll discuss strategy. There's some debate whether how useful cabinet meetings are because for the vast majority of issues on the agenda there isn't a lot discussed in the part of the meeting devoted to political strategy far bigger far more consequential questions might be entertained questions like how should the government respond to the latest polls Or what should the government do when it comes to an upcoming negotiation with a labor union? And can the government break this promise that no longer seems feasible or important? And what policies and programs that weren't at all on the government's radar during the election campaign now seem critical? Or where can the government afford to spend some of its political capital, cutting a certain program or making an unpopular decision? The routine items that cabinet addressed were fixed. They just had to get done. But everything else, all those questions about political strategy, the answers to those questions are the kind of things that we end up noticing as the public. They're the things that differentiate one government from the next. And it's in those questions, whether they were entertained at cabinet at all, and how they were entertained, that made the difference between how cabinet meetings work differently from one premier to the next. Some of the cabinets we heard about were cabinets where the ministers who sat around the table felt like they had a substantial degree of power and influence, and others felt like the power was too concentrated in the premier's office. But all of the ex-ministers we spoke to seemed to agree that at cabinet, the power to determine whether a cabinet was consulted and engaged or simply given their marching orders wholly resided at the premier's office. Because at the end of the day, if there were deep disagreements around the cabinet table, it was up to the premier to make the final call. In the same way that each minister decides for their own reasons how much, or if at all, to consult caucus on decisions happening in their office, the premier decided, for his own reasons, how much, or if at all, to bring the whole cabinet into discussions on key political and strategy decisions. So for the rest of this episode, what we're going to do is walk through the experience of cabinet ministers who served in the last several cabinets of Nova Scotia government. We'll talk to ministers from the cabinets of John Savage, John Hamm, Rodney MacDonald, Daryl Dexter, and one minister from Stephen McNeil's government. Wayne Adams and Francine Cosman served as ministers in John Savage's liberal government. I'm curious, just like, when it came to broader, bigger, government-wide initiatives, mm-hmm. um, that really define a government um, and the governments you served in was uh, how, how would cabinet be involved in, in those kind of discussions or how would it show up in a cabinet? In our experience, um, total participation, conciliatory, 
I really think that the premium we had was probably the best facilitator I've ever encountered, whether it be from school days to industry days to certainly to politics. So how, like, how would he operate? Well, the agenda, he'd be written by him and his, his staff, of course. But then he shared the agenda, item by item, to get our consensus, get our feeling. Is this something we can go forward with? Is something we can afford to do? I guess it would vary depending on the issue. Uh, and if there were, if there was something really contested, it would ride to the Premier, because the Premier's the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, a minister brings their own issues forward. Um, the deputy comes in, presents the issue as well. And at that time, I don't know if it's that way today. Um, there were a few times when, you know, you could question your fellow cabinet minister and say, if you, could you look at it this way or will you bring it back? You know, mm-hmm. so, so there was some give and take. But we had a lot of authority as as ministers of our own department and it usually was brought forward and handled so that we had what we wanted. We heard that John Savage and the Premier's John Hamm and Rodney MacDonald, both progressive conservative party leaders, ran their cabinets in a way that was more consensus oriented than the Premier's who would come after them. Gordon Balzer was one of the cabinet ministers in John Hamm's cabinet. We were bound by cabinet confidentiality in terms of talking about, you know, specifics. But I would say that the way it would work, generally speaking, is uh, an issue that needed to be brought forward to cabinet uh, that fell under your responsibility as a minister. Uh, Briefing papers would be prepared and your staff team would take you as a minister through it so that you had a fair, a good understanding of what the issue was and what the implications. You'd be given time at the cabinet table to present that information and then there would be a substantive discussion where everyone had equal uh, input and at the end of the day when it became time to make the decision uh, it would be a a consensus if you will there would be a yay or nay so to speak but sometimes before becoming premier himself Rodney McDonald also served as a minister in John Hamm's cabinet you don't vote in cabinet really? no you don't vote in cabinet. How does it work? It's consensus. So a foreign minister stands up and says... Well, it's, it's, uh, you agree. The government agrees. And, and people often ask, well, why, why, why does a minister come out of a cabinet room and say, you know, why does everybody agree? Well, the reason why is uh, the process is that you leave that room with uh, coming to an agreement. And was it your sense that this is something that you and, and John Hamm took into the cabinet room, or is it that's just the way it's always been done? Well, my understanding is that that has always been the way. When we considered everything we heard about consensus decision-making in cabinet, it wasn't clear to us what consensus meant. In this cabinet, or any cabinet where the term consensus was used to describe how a decision was reached. According to Rodney McDonald, in cabinet... Your team comes to an agreement. That may take one meeting... It may take six meetings until you find, uh, you know, a decision that everyone can agree with, come to terms with. So it's it's the first number of times I was in a cabinet, I was really struck by this. 
most people would think, well, there's obviously must be a vote, a secret vote, which is not the case. Jamie Muir was a minister in both Rodney MacDonald and John Hamm's PC cabinets. His perspective, as someone who has not sat in the Premier's chair, was quite different. The number one rule is that the Premier is always right. If you want to disagree with what the uh, Premier is proposing, then in the cabinet you're perfectly, I mean, you got the opportunity to vent, you know, why, why you don't like a particular proposal or would like it all or to whatnot, and uh, then it comes down to a collective decision. And you know, and, and sometimes the premier must say, "Well, you know, that's a pretty good idea." So I'm confused <laughs> just by what you said. On the one hand, the premier is always right, yeah. but it's a consensus and collective decision at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Help me, help me understand well, how those two things. Okay, happen. if it's a government priority, it's, it's like the budget. Mm-hmm. You know, budget would be put together. Everybody would have some input into it. Mm-hmm. It'd be a final document, okay, and if we felt that this was the budget that should be presented, then that's what it is. But on the other hand, as uh, going through the discussion, say, well, I see that this is part of that budget. I think this is more important than that. Can you switch switch those two lines? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can do that type of thing. But, uh, you know, the, the Premier has basically the final decision. Uh, you know, I mean... Chair of the board. You know, I would think everybody in the room was against it, then the premier might rethink. Uh, but if one person says, well, I don't like that, mm-hmm. then, you know, generally, you know, generally the, the premier will, you know, his opinion or her, or her, her opinion mm-hmm. uh, would be the one which cabinet would endorse. Well, you have lots of time to, I mean, you can argue all you want. I mean, yeah. but... You know, when it comes down to the final thing, everybody, when you walk out that door, everybody, there's nobody voting no on that. Right. No vote. <laughs> you know, there's no vote. It's consensus. That, right. And, you know, this is what sometimes get people in. We, it never happened to us, I guess, but we went there and, and all of a sudden say, no, I don't agree with what cabinet did. You're a member of cabinet. Well, you say that you're not likely that you'll be a member of cabinet on the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just it. That's the reality facing cabinet ministers. Even in cabinets like John Hamm's and Rodney McDonald's, where there weren't necessarily examples of ministers who did push too hard or step out of line, the notion that a minister who went too far could simply be removed by the premier never escaped a cabinet minister's mind. The difference was simply how clearly that was communicated and understood by all members of cabinet. It could be implicit, as it was in the conversations that happened around the cabinet tables of Rodney MacDonald and John Hamm. Or it could be made explicit, by example, as it was in the cabinet of Gerald Dexter. In last week's episode, we heard this take from Maurice Smith, who served as Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure Renewal in Daryl Dexter's NDP cabinet. And you know, there were a couple of, couple of issues, like I think the clear-cutting one, and one about the cuts to education, where um, the ministers themselves didn't didn't go along with what the plan was going to be from the central office and they weren't the minister any longer Marilyn Moore was moved out of education because she wouldn't go along with the cuts that were the, the drastic cuts that were asked John McDonnell was taken out of natural resources because he wasn't supportive of the final you know clear-cutting issue uh, so yeah you you I think it's always the premier's discretion. They were given other portfolios. 
you know, they were just moved. Um, so that's the kind of power I think that these, these, this, the, the premier's office had. Um, they would, they would basically. This is what what's, what's going to be happening. And even if even if you as minister weren't agreeing, it's going to be happening. So if you're not on board, someone else will do it. But there were inconsistencies in what we heard from members of Dexter's cabinet on how powerful the force of the premier's office was. Sometimes even from the same members. For instance, in a different section of his interview, Marie Smith also told us this. Cabinet, cabinet is uh, it's fascinating because it's, as I say, it's by consensus. But I mean, I, there were a couple of things that I just said, well, I can't really agree to that. And, you know, the premier would say, well, if we can't, if we're not all on, the, on the same page on this, we can't do it. Perhaps I'm about to read too much into Mo Smith's last statement, but one way to square this inconsistency is to assume that the Premier's office simply got smart and stopped bringing decisions they had their minds made up on to Cabinet. Percy Paris, another minister in the Dexter government, told us about his experience. Some decisions were made uh, that were, were coming from that so-called Premier's office. That whoever those, whoever that was, and it was, there were a number of them. The, the, there was the premier's office that had this, um, had this power to do this, this, and that. And there were times that uh, uh, there would, and I, I'm trying to, I can't even think of examples, that something would happen, and it would have been a decision that came out of the premier's office. Hmm. With no unnecessary involvement of cabinet or caucus? Yeah, yeah. Somebody who is solidly on the record for having voiced his discomfort with the Premier's office making decisions unilaterally is Graham Steele. It's what made him leave Cabinet. In his book, What I Learned About Politics, he wrote about the negotiation of a collective agreement with the NSGEU, one where the Treasury Board and Caucus had already approved one proposal, and within hours of Caucus approving the plan as championed by the Premier, the Premier's staff had convinced their boss to float a more generous offer to the Union and Graham, then finance minister, had no means of opposing the decision. In his book, he wrote, I knew what this meant. Daryl's staff had kept working on him after the caucus meeting, and they persuaded him that this alternative proposal would get the deal. There had been no consultation with the Treasury Board. There had been no discussion with the caucus about why the game plan had changed. The boys in the Premier's office had gone to work on Daryl, and they didn't care what anybody else thought. Once the offer was made to the union, it couldn't be pulled back and the Premier had told his boys to make the offer. When there were discussions on political issues and strategic issues in the Dexter cabinet, it happened at the beginning of the meeting, typically for just a half hour, before it came to the point where the focus had to shift to the routine work of cabinet. In that half hour that you're saying anybody could bring up anything they wanted to discuss, what, uh, I guess, what types of discussions would happen there? Well, that... that, that the people would bring up things that were not part of the formal agenda. There might be there might be some political issue. Or somebody had heard something, or they were concerned about something. Because we didn't do that for the first little while, and then and then everybody realized that we were having these cabinet meetings week after week. And but the, but we weren't dealing with the political issues because everybody imagines, I think, the cabinet as the top political body where all the all the hot political issues of the day are being discussed. But that that wasn't happening at all. So I can't remember how long it took us to set aside that first half hour. It couldn't be too long, because if you set aside too long from the cabinet meeting, you couldn't get through the agenda. Sometimes the agenda was incredibly long. 
sometimes it was really short. It just, like I said, it just depended what was pushed forward by the sausage factory. And so, so there was no, there was no rhyme or reason. It was, it was, it was whatever was bugging one person or some whatever a hot political issue of the day was. Um, no, there was no. I can't say. Well, it, it tended to be devoted to this or that topic. The topics were all all over the place. Or the premier would just talk about something important that he'd been working on lately, or that he'd done, or seen, or heard, or whatever. But we had to reserve some time for that kind of open-ended discussion. Now, I can imagine other premiers might allow more time for that, uh, but we didn't in the Dexter government because what you know what happened was that that kind of stuff about dealing with the the hot issues of the day, putting out the fires ended up being the domain of the premier's office and and most it most of it was not stuff that would have been helped or advanced by talking it through with the whole graham was clear that it wasn't so much that certain issues weren't getting paid attention to but rather that the meaningful discussion discussion that had some impact on the ultimate decision would often happen at cabinet committees or in the premier's office it's not happening at cabinet it's not happening the full cabinet okay and that's that's something I think most people don't realize. Why would you unless you'd sat in the cabinet? It's because it's the top legal body. There's a certain amount of formal legal stuff that it has to do, and it takes up a lot of time. Is there another, like, are there other ways to do that? Okay, so, so let me get it. So, so far I've talked about just what happens in the full cabinet. Okay, so, so then you have cabinet committees, and that's where a little bit more of the real work was being done, where there were more... Discussion. So there were several cabinet committees. There was policy and priorities. There was um, Treasury Board, of course, which is technically a committee of cabinet. There was an economic development committee. Something we haven't talked much about yet is cabinet committees. And even though we're just getting to talking about them now, they've been a part of how cabinet operates in all of the governments we've discussed so far. Cabinet committees were made up of cabinet ministers, and in the case of the Legislation Committee, some backbench government MLAs as well, at least in the case of the Dexter government. The committees Graham just mentioned, those committees... Those were the main ones. Um, And they were all attended by people from the Premier's office, senior people from the Premier's office. So those committees tended to be the places where you had more of that open-ended discussion. Like the Treasury Board is essentially dealing with approving all expenditures of the government so that's pretty important and and so you're that's the place where you're putting the whole picture together about how all the pieces fit together Uh, under the Dexter government the policy and priorities committee essentially stopped meeting after a while because all the stuff that it was supposed to do was being run out of the premier's office and I i think they just got tired of going through the formality of taking it to the policy and priorities committee so that that was a bit of a that that didn't work very well, you know. And it's because their people are busy, and they just if a committee stops meeting, that's a sign that people don't find it very useful. I and mean, the premier and the premier's office just didn't find that particular committee very useful because if they could do it upstairs on the seventh floor, why why would they take it to a cabinet committee that wasn't adding any real value. It's probably a good time to give you a bit of an orientation to where all of these places are. The Premier's office and the room where cabinet meets are in the same building. It's called One Government Place. 
One government place is directly across the street from Province House. If you walk out the rear door of Province House, towards Citadel Hill, across Granville Street, and in the doors of one government place, you're on the floor where Cabinet meets. If you take the elevator up to the top floors of the building, you're where the Premier's yeah, office the cross-cutting is. cross-cutting stuff, the stuff that affects the whole government, that's being done out of the Premier's office. And you'll know from reading my book, the, my view, that um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but our Premier's office was just very badly understaffed to do it. So they were run off their feet trying to run the government, a handful of people on the, you know, on the sixth and seventh floor of one government place. Um, that's where the real decision-making was happening, not, not in a cabinet room, not in a... We've reached out to all of the living premiers that we've mentioned in this podcast series to invite them to participate in the same kind of exit interview we offered to other MLAs. Rodney McDonald was the only premier to accept our invitation, so we haven't had the chance to hear from other premiers like Daryl Dexter about how they approached cabinet and why it's sometimes their preference to make decisions unilaterally. I was one of the people, which probably didn't help me politically, who would speak up when I thought he was wrong and speak up sometimes in cabinet, probably too often. The last person we'll hear from in this episode is Andrew Younger, the only former cabinet minister and MLA we've interviewed who served in Stephen McNeil's Liberal cabinet and caucus. McNeil's personality is such that it it is a little bit risky to tell him that you think he's wrong. Uh, And that's not... it's somebody's going to hear that and think that's a criticism but i mean there's lots of people that have that personality and lots of people in politics have that personality yeah. in terms of the the way things worked in yeah. in steve mcneil's cabinet how does decision making work there well it changed when we were first elected as as a group in 2013 we were all given an incredible amount of freedom to go and do our own thing we were given when the Liberals took office in the fall of 2013, it was already well established that Daryl Dexter's NDP government had centralized much of the decision-making for their government within the Premier's office. So it seemed like an intentional shift for McNeil to give ministers the independence that was seen as lacking in the previous government. Given mandate letters said, here, this is what you're responsible for getting done, get it done. You make the decisions in your department, you lead that. And to some extent that followed through, but that started to drift. Um, say towards the end of my first year there and I was always fortunate to get quite a lot of latitude but what became what became the problem is in every cabinet of any party you're going to have weaker ministers or ministers that don't uh, necessarily read their briefing books or don't even know that they have something on the agenda Uh, and I'm convinced that happens for every party but it's how somebody addresses that and what happened is um, there was sort of a a clamp down on the cabinet generally to make sure that uh, every decision started going through the premier's office before it even made it to cabinet, um, which, I mean, maybe it should be. The, the premier started taking on more control of certain decisions. Um, the premier's office staff started to get more involved. And so I think the decision-making style evolved, and now it has very much become... Um, the premier makes the decisions um, and the ministers implement them to a certain extent. Um, but the premier's office, and you've seen this with the change in how they've staffed that office, ha- now has almost absolute control over the departments. Uh, and that is what I understand that it was much more like 
uh, under Daryl Dexter's government, at least towards the end. Because when I came in as energy minister, um, people were surprised at the latitude I had and the freedom I had to address the day-to-day issues. Um, where they had said, well, under Daryl Dexter's government, there was actually somebody from the premier's office basically in the energy department every day, I mean, pretty well housed there. And maybe just stepping back a bit, yeah. what, what what point in time would that shift have taken place? I think that uh, it started to change when there were issues around, uh, there were issues in healthcare and so forth that the the premier's office would end up getting flat-footed and just wouldn't even know that there was something coming up or um, people weren't necessarily prioritizing the right issues. So for example, the doctor's issue, you know, uh, the doctors weren't an issue, the doctor shortage wasn't an issue, wasn't an issue, then all of a sudden it exploded. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the, the premier's office, whether they should have known about it or, or, or not, is people can debate that politically, but it caused them to become much more involved in the health department, for example. And I think that spread out o- over all areas. And there- One thing that we heard from Andrew Younger that we didn't hear from ministers in any yeah, other governments no, they, was they about the importance the premier and cabinet placed on polling data. The one thing you need to know about the McNeil government is they rely heavily on polling. Um, the decisions that they and they got in trouble for it early on because they were using CNS to do it, C- Communications Nova Scotia, which you're allowed to do, uh-huh. but it meant that all that polling data was available through FOIPA. Uh, so they stopped doing that, and the, the party paid the party. for a lot of it now. Okay, but they rely ev- almost every decision they made make is polled and focus grouped and and so forth. Which is like other cabinets, where the premier's opinion was the most important opinion, Andrew told us that McNeil's cabinet was no different. Well, the premier certainly has the last word, uh, and certainly with McNeil, that's the case. That became early on; it was certainly consent. Officially, cabinet is always consensus because whatever decision is made by cabinet is a unanimous decision. There, there is no vote, but. There were, I can remember items that we voted on, um, like just as an informal show of hands. Um, There weren't any significant ones that I can recall that went against what the Premier wanted to do. Uh, Usually what would happen is if it appeared that, if it appeared that the majority of the room um, felt differently than the Premier, the item would get deferred. And then there would be all kinds of discussions, and at some later date, it would come back to cabinet, and the decision would be worked out. That didn't happen too often because usually everybody knew where something was going. But it did happen. Um, nothing went ahead without the premier agreeing to it. I, what I did notice, though, was over the time that I was there, and I was in cabinet for basically three years, the better part of three years, is that there seemed to be a, a pre-strategy meeting, a much more intense pre-strategy meeting done in the Premier's office among him and his People say that decision-making in Nova Scotia politics happens in a black box, but that presumes that once you're inside the black box, you can get a handle on how decisions are being made and what happened. And that's not entirely true. There's not one black box. There are several. And each of them contains even more black boxes. And all of those black boxes are overlapping. If you're brand new to Nova Scotia politics, you might be forgiven for presuming that decision-making happens in the legislature. So if you want to know what's happening, you look in the legislature. In the legislature, you would find the members of cabinet. 
Within the cabinet, you would find the members of the treasury board, one committee of cabinet. And when you look at both the cabinet and the governing caucus, you'll find that the members of the legislation committee of cabinet are there. Between the legislation committee and the treasury board, the key responsibilities of government are taken care of, bringing forward legislation and collecting and spending public funds. But what you don't see is the premier's office, the black box that's often invisible to the public. It's this office whose staff will influence the premier's decision-making, and it's the premier who will decide whether to trust one cabinet minister or another with the decisions that are being made within their own offices. And some ministers may retain that power, while others will not, and their offices will become black box decoys. So no, decision-making in government doesn't happen in a black box. It happens across several, nested, overlapping black boxes. It's kind of like those Russian Matryoshka dolls, where you pick up the doll, only there's a tinier doll inside of it, and a tinier doll inside of it. Except it's not like a Russian Matryoshka doll because it's multidimensional. They're overlapping. There's no clear delineation of boundaries between dolls. And as soon as you think you can see where something is, your vision gets blurry again, or you no longer trust your vision. When there are so many places to hide something, it's extremely difficult for the average citizen to see where the decisions are actually being made. In an upcoming episode of the podcast, we're going to share some of the answers we heard to one of the final questions we asked former MLAs in our exit interviews. That question was this, what needs to change in order to improve Nova Scotia politics? One of the answers you'll hear shared often is more education about politics in the school system and a public that better understands the political process. Politics is about how power is distributed within a society. It's about who controls what. It's possible to teach people about the political process, the way things are supposed to be done, to talk about the places power supposedly lies. And we probably should teach children about those things. But if we do, inevitably, there will be a kid at the back of the class paying very little attention to the lesson. And maybe their teacher will call that kid out and try to smarten them up. And maybe that kid will snap back and say, come on, miss, or come on, sir. We all know that's not how it really works. And they'll be right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of On The Record Off Script. This episode has not only been one of the episodes I've enjoyed writing and compiling the most, but it's also one of the episodes I think most people need to hear. It is incredibly important, I think, to understand how power works in the places that we live. If you think that is important too, I only want to ask one thing of you this week, to share this episode. The easiest ways to share this episode are first to go to springtide.ngo slash OS17 and share that page on Facebook or Twitter, or head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash springtideco, and to share the post with this episode featured. It's called a One Government Place. We have two episodes left in the story of the Nova Scotia former MLAs. We hope you'll tune in. If you are a first-time listener, we encourage you to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes where we heard some never-before-publicly-told stories from Nova Scotia's former MLAs. If you're a long-time listener, we want you to know that we're not done here. We might be nearly done telling the story of Nova Scotia's former MLAs, but we're committed to continuing to telling the stories of Nova Scotian politics, Nova Scotian democracy, and Nova Scotian activism. So, if you are interested in what we're doing and you are interested in where we're going, we want to hear from you. 
Send an email to offscript at springtide.ngo. Tell us who you'd like to hear from, what you'd like to hear about when it comes to the future of this podcast, and when it comes to helping you be more effective and authentic at leading political change in Nova Scotia with your integrity intact. Thank you to our sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to hellofresh.ca slash on the record to get your 50% off discount off your first order from HelloFresh. It was always good. Uh, sometimes it dragged on. I, I'm not a person that likes long meetings, you know. But we'd meet and have lunch. Christ, we started cabinet. Started with breakfast. And then lunch. And I'm thinking, fellas, for the love of Jesus, boys. You know, give me breakfast or give me lunch, but I don't want both in here. Anyway, um... That was nice. Oh, my God. I cannot to this day eat a sandwich. I hate sandwiches. I have never in my life hated an egg sandwich. If I saw another egg sandwich, I used to like them one time. But that's because that's what you got. Coffee and a sandwich. We didn't have any steak dinners. There was nothing fancy. It was just something just to keep you going. Hmm. And we would work line by line by line. And always, 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 always. There is somebody in cabinet, and there is somebody in caucus that has to talk about everything. He had to talk about everything, monopolize everything, knew more than anybody. And then he'd get defeated or quit or he'd be gone. Jesus, it wouldn't be a week, and somebody else would jump in, and he was the guy that suddenly became a rock star and had to voice his opinion on everything. You know, it was Some of these guys weren't that bright, but they had to talk all the time.